Welcome to the Faith Community Church Podcast, a ministry of Faith Community Church in South Boston, Virginia. We're glad you can join us as interim pastor Kyle Julius shares a weekly message to encourage you to deepen your faith in Jesus Christ. Here's Pastor Kyle. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians. We're going to pick up in our study in chapter 4, looking at verses 25 through 32 this morning. I sent my sermon information a couple weeks ago to Glenn, and uh, I only had two points last Sunday, so when I sent that, he asked me, what are you, what's your third point? And I said, don't worry, I've got five next week, so I make up for it. Uh, so if you, were, if you felt the loss of the third point last week, you've got uh, an extra two uh, this week. So, uh, but if you're at Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to start off in verse 25, if you would read with me to verse 32. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good, as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray for every heart in the room this morning. There's no doubt that we've carried specific anxieties, questions, doubts, certain losses into the room this morning. And there's a lot of confusion and chaos in the world. And a lot that has not been submitted under the rule of your kingdom. And yet here we come under that rule, under the authority of your word. And we pray that all of those doubts, questions, anxieties, confusion would be submitted under the reality that the tomb is empty. that the Savior is risen. Not only that, but reigning. And I pray that your word would penetrate into the areas of the hearts sitting here this morning, including my own. God, help me to speak only that which you want me to speak this morning. And may you be lifted up, may you be exalted, and may holiness be promoted. And so we pray, Lord, what we know not teach us, what we are not make us, and what we have not give us for the sake of your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Most people have heard of Arthur Conan Doyle's renowned detective, Sherlock Holmes. But less familiar is the literary character upon which Sherlock was based, a gentleman by the name of C. Augustus Dupin, created by Edgar Allan Poe. Talk about a mouthful of a name. 
guess Sherlock Holmes was better. But uh, see Augustus Dupin, there was three short stories that featured this Sherlockian prototype. And in one of these stories, known as the purloined letter, Dupin recovers a stolen letter hidden in a thief's hotel suite. Dupin's discovery astonished police who had meticulously searched for the letter. They had gone so far to look between every page of every book to take a microscope to all the furniture and every floorboard and to probe the chair cushions with fine long needles. Every square inch of the thief's room had been scrutinized by the police. So how had the stolen letter eluded them? Well, the answer is simple, because it was, it was out in open, plain sight the entire time. Uh, you see, Dupin understood the thief's mind, and it was hidden in a stack of open letters in plain sight. Thus, Dupin ended up recovering the letter that was so meticulously searched for by the police. Why, why this story? Why, why share that with you? Well, because I think a lot of times in the Christian life, some of the main things are the plain things. And those things are the things that are often neglected because we spend so much time scrutinizing and probing all the other mysterious things, all the things that are high and lofty, and we ignore the plain things. And I found myself, as I was studying this Texas uh, week, uh, is that all of the main things and all of my points were in plain sight. And I had spent from Monday to Friday meticulously searching every, and probing all the words and depths and grammar and language and all this other stuff. And then last night it occurred to me, everything is laid out for us in plain sight. How to live out our salvation with one another is laid out by Paul. Sometimes Paul is a little complicated, but not this morning. Paul is going to be very, very clear and very practical, and very plain. And it's our job to walk in those plain things. Last week, my sermon, uh, the main idea was to live out your salvation in Christ. And so this week, the main thrust of Paul's argument in verses 25 through 32 is to live out your salvation with one another. If you look in verse 25, all throughout this passage, you're going to see, let each one of you speak the truth with who? His neighbor. For we are members of one another. Verse 28, doing honest work so that you would share with anyone in need. Uh, let no corrupting talk, verse 29, come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as it fits the occasion so that it may give grace to those who hear. And then last, uh, lastly, in verse 32, forgiving one another. This whole argument here in verses 25 through 32 is going to be directed towards how believers act towards one another. And in that way, you live out your salvation. So as we talked about last week, you not only live out your salvation in Christ as an individual putting to death the sins that so cling closely to you and also pursuing holiness and putting on daily the new man created after the likeness of God, but you also live out your salvation not only as an individual, but with one another together corporately. The Christian life is meant to be done with all the saints, as we looked at earlier on in chapter 4. And so Paul gives us five exhortations on how to walk or how to live out our salvation with one another. These are practical, 
basic, in plain sight exhortations on how we can live out our salvation with one another. If you want to be a church that is marked by anything, let it be these five exhortations Paul gives us. So the first exhortation that Paul reminds us in this chapter is to tell the truth. Profound. Look at verse 25. Paul says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, he assumes that they're already engaged in, they've already put away the old person, They've already walked in the newness of their life. And so he says, therefore, having done that, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. If we proclaim and we confess to know the truth and to follow the one who said that he is the truth, then our churches and our gatherings and our lives with one another ought to be marked by truthfulness towards one another, not only in speech, but also in deed. It's a shame that most churches are known for their dishonesty and their hypocrisy rather than their truthfulness. And yet Paul calls the church as a body to, to speak the truth with his neighbor for he says, why should we speak the truth with one another? Well, because we're members of one another. What I say is going to affect the person next to me. How I, uh, sh- how I use my words, and we're going to see this a little bit more in depth here uh, later on, is going to ultimately uh, affect the person that sits next to me and who I'm in membership with. And it's going to affect the way other members of the church are going to trust what I say. A church is created by the truth of the gospel. It lives out the truth of the gospel. And so in our daily lives, practically looking, we should be walking and speaking and doing life in truth with one another. In fact, uh, speaking truth towards one another, uh, it was such a big deal in the early church that two people, we see the severity and the consequences of a church um, that uh, how God felt about members of a church speaking deceitfully. If you look at Acts chapter 5, you can turn there or you can just write it down. But we have a prime example in the book of Acts of what it look, how God feels towards members of a church speaking falsehood towards one another. In Acts 5, we have, we're introduced to a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira. And Luke records, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your hearts to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. She said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet 
and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. It just goes to show that the way we speak to one another, what we say to one another about our lives, about the gospel, matters to God. It matters significantly, so much so that in the early church, as Jesus was beginning to build his church, he took, God took the lives of two individuals who would, who would be in the church to lie and to... The, the thing is, is Jesus didn't want to build his church and begin his church with deceit and untruthfulness and lying. And yet, the churches today in our culture are typically filled with the same things that Jesus made clear in Acts uh, was not to be a part of his church. And so Paul says a mark of the new person, of a church that is living out their salvation with one another, is truthfulness. It's truthfulness. We can not only lie with our words, but we can also lie indeed. We can lie about who God is and about what he's done in our lives by the way we live our lives. We can bear false witness to who God is by the way we treat one another, by the way we treat our neighbor, by the way we live day to day, we can lie and bear false witness about who God is. And the reason why I know this is because Paul in Galatians uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 11, outlines the way he confronted Peter, a leader of the church, how his conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. You remember Peter in Galatians, Paul says that when Peter uh, was, uh, was surrounding himself with Gentiles, with those who did not live like Jewish believers, and then when prominent Jewish believers came into the picture, he withdrew out of fear away from the Gentile believers and started to uh, make claims that the Gentile believers had to live like the Jewish believers. And then Paul immediately confronts his error and say, how can you though a Jew and don't live like one, tell the Gentiles that they have to live like one. And, it, and he says it's not in step with the truth of the gospel. And so we see all throughout the New Testament that our words should be rooted in truth towards one another. We should be honest, an honest group of people that have no reason to keep back the truth or live out of step of the truth. And when another brother or sister is living out of step of the truth or talking out of the step of the truth, then we have a responsibility as members of one another to point that out, confront it, and, and put the gospel in front of that lie. Uh, sometimes we lie about really small things. Sometimes we lie about big things. Sometimes we let brothers and sisters live in lies. And yet, Paul says, because we're members of one another, that also logically follows we are keepers of one another. You know, I, I, the social, um, the Facebook feeds and the Instagram feeds and the comment section and, and, and all of them uh, and the amount of Christians that comment or share certain news or theories or ideas, um, it's just astounding to me. Uh, the people who are most likely to be led by falsehood or spread falsehood are those who claim to be believers. Do you know how many believers I've talked to that believe ridiculous conspiracy theories and they hold it as gospel and then they spread it to the other people in the churches and the spaces in which they dwell and now you've got a group of believers believing something, uh, some deep fake stuff happening in DC, you got some stuff that's happening about this. I mean, it's just wild and incredible that people who are 
followers of the one who said he is the truth are so prone to believe and follow lies. And not only lies and conspiracy theories and tricks and uh, you know smoke screens and shadows are believers prone to believe, but they're also believe they're pro- we're prone to believe a different version of what we have of God in the scriptures. Where we're prone to believe a, a false gospel, we're prone to believe a false god, and by the and, and it's and it's evident by the way that we live, by the way that we talk, by the words that we use. Not only do I I, I sense that believers are uh, one of the first groups of people in our culture to be led astray by conspiracy theories, by things that are not true, um, but I also find uh, that believers are uh, really prone to use buzzwords. Uh, Christian buzzwords, you know, things that uh, they say about God or about the gospel or about the Bible or they're they're just, there's these common popular phrases that believers take in as though they are written down in the pages of scripture and they're just not. But we cling to them and we take them in and we live them out One of those is, I mean, if you want an example, we could look at God wants me happy. God wants me healthy. God loves me, and he has a great plan for my life. And the thing about falsehood is there's just enough truth in some statement with a little bit of error. Oh, and we'll embrace it. And then we share it with one another. Another one I think about is uh, I was was going on a tangent in the car as I was driving up here. Um, A buzzword I have heard in a lot of contemporary Christian music is uh, breakthrough. It's about your breakthrough. God is going to act a breakthrough in your life. He's going to give a breakthrough for you. And every song that's been written in the past year now has been about breakthrough. And I just have to ask, where in the New Testament have you found the notion of breakthrough? When we cling to things that are not true about God or the gospel or the Christian life, and then we start to share it with one another, we start to live it out with one another, we are essentially motivating and encouraging falsehood. And we have to be very careful. We serve a God whose word is accurate, pure, and life-giving. And so let's not trade in what God has said for some stuff that the world or we have come up with on our own imaginations, on our own feelings, on our own, uh, you know, based on social media feeds. Let's be people who speak the truth in every single area in our lives. Be honest with one another. Be true. Sometimes being truthful with one another requires really difficult conversations. It requires difficult conversations. It requires groups of people. I mean, this is such a big deal. Again, we see in Acts and we see in Galatians that to speak the truth to one another was a serious, serious, uh, it, it, it was vital because the church, according to Paul in 1 Timothy, is the uh, pillar and the buttress of truth. It is the household of the living God, and it is supposed to be the representation of what is true and to embrace what is true. And in a culture right now where truth is is, is almost nearly gone. We have to make sure that we're not just preaching a true gospel, but living and teaching and speaking truth towards one another, despite how difficult it is, and despite, and despite our defaults as sin, still sinful human beings, though redeemed, 
to embrace and to speak falsehood. So Paul says the first way that you live out your salvation with one another is to tell the truth. The second way that Paul exhorts the church to live out this new life is to heed your own heart. Get verses 26 through 27. Paul writes, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. This verses, verse 26 seems to kind of not fit within the argument of Paul here. It just kind of seems to come out of nowhere. And it seems like he's permitting anger within the church. We can read this, and if we don't understand Scripture, we can kind of justify our anger towards somebody or something or our, our person. You know, I'm just an angry person, and as long as I'm not sinning, I can continue to be angry. But I don't think that's what Paul is uh, getting at here. I think what Paul is doing, if we uh, pay attention closely, is Paul is echoing, uh, really, Psalm 4. Uh, if you were here on Tuesday night, we, looked, we took a look at Psalm chapter 4, and Psalm 4, David is lamenting at the sins and the disobedience and the uh, digression of society. And he's lamenting, and he's asking the question towards those around him, towards those in Jerusalem, towards those outside of Jerusalem, how long are you going to love vain words and seek after lies? Or in other words, how long are you going to worship false idols? How long are you going to tarnish the name of God and tarnish the name of God's people? And I think, and I think if we're honest, we ask that question every day as the people of God. And, but the, the, the temptation is, is for us to ask those questions, to observe the world, to look at the sin sickness that is ridden society, and then we just become just as rageful as the rest of culture. We mimic, in being angry at what God is angry in, we all of a sudden mimic this, this self-righteous anger that demands people to bow down to our uh, preferences and to bow down uh, to our notions. Look at what Paul, he says, be angry and do not sin. That's the thing David told himself after he laments what he was seeing around, uh, around him. Is he, he prays to himself, be angry and do not sin. And then he follows with, ponder on your own hearts, on your own beds, and offer right sacrifices to the Lord. In other words, David is reminding himself that there is bad, wicked men who tarnish the name of God and tarnish the name of God's people, yet heart, I know, he, he knows his own heart, he knows it's prone uh, to be self-righteous and to be wrathful, uh, and, it, and it is weak in human frailty, and so he says, ponder in your own heart. In other words, heed your own heart. Take stock of your own uh, deficiencies. Take stock of your own flaws. Take stock of your own sinfulness. Take stock of what God is doing in your own heart and what he is often has to be patient with you in. And so Paul says, when he says, be angry and do not sin, we hear echoes of Psalm 4, 8. And as we read Psalm 4, 8, we see that the way to be angry and not to sin is take heed of your own heart. They, there are things that we can be angry and righteously angry about. Uh, Jesus was was demonstrated anger uh, many a times, but his anger was not demonstrated towards people who were um, struggling, who were ignorant, who were not at the same level as he was. His anger was often directed towards those who would make a mockery of who God is and distorted who he was towards the people of Israel. You think about him walking into the temple in Mark 1, and he flips over tables because they've turned the house of God into a place, or he says, a den of robbers. 
In other words, they have lied about God and about what God requires and about who God is, and they have led astray His people. And so God, Jesus is righteously angry at that. But then there's another uh, uh, the scene in the Gospels where uh, they're walking through Samaria. And if you remember, uh, Samaritans and Israelites did not get along with one another. And as they're walking to Jerusalem, Jesus is not welcomed in Samaria. And then John, the disciple whom he loved, looked at Jesus and said, Jesus, would you like us to call down fire from heaven and smite these wicked people? And Jesus rebukes him. And so what Paul is teaching here is, look, it is right to be angry at the wickedness and the sin that permeates the world and permeates the churches. And that has permeated spots in your life. But be angry and do not sin. How do we not sin in our anger? Well, Paul gives us a little bit here. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. In other words, there's a time limit on all of our anger. Believers should not walk around constantly angry, cynical, and critical at everything around them. Why? Because Glenn mentioned earlier in his pastoral prayer, because we live in the best of times because the tomb is empty. Believers have no right to walk around being rageful and wrathful all the time. So be angry, Paul says, but be rightly angry and know that your anger is more prone to unrighteousness than it is to righteousness. It is more prone to selfishness and to defensiveness than it is towards the righteousness of God. And so a church ought to be marked. The way, one of the ways a church lives out their salvation with one another um, is to just heed your own heart. Ponder on your own hearts, in your own homes, in your own lives, in your own area of weaknesses, in your own sinful bents, and offer right sacrifices to the Lord. Spend more time dwelling on your own defaults and deficiencies. And he says, and give no opportunity to the devil. One of the ways that we've seen the devil have a heyday in our culture and have a wide-open foothold and opportunity is that everybody is pretty much mad all the time. And so the, the redeemed covenant community of God should be marked mostly, mostly by those who heed their own heart and rejoice that the gospel has provided a balm and medicine for their own deficiencies. And it's provided a balm and medicine and a cure for the sin sickness that we so rightly look at and be sorrowful and angry at. So Paul says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down your anger. In other words, there's a time limit. Don't spend most of your days in anger and criticalness and cynicalness and give no opportunity to the devil because if he can keep you angry, he can keep you ineffective for the advancement of the kingdom. And then the third way that we live out our salvation with one another is we labor according to love. We labor according to love. Look at verse 28. Again, we're seeing these stark contrast and different difference of the life that's marked out in verses 17 through uh, tw- uh, 19, the callousness, the alienation, the darkness, the hardness of heart, Paul is just continuing to 
to describe and lay before us what it looks like to actually live out the goodness of God in our lives and the redemption of the gospel. And so he says in verse 28, he says, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. In other words, labor according to love. Uh, he, he says, No longer steal. Uh, but do honest work so that you might have something to share with anyone in need. Uh, Paul is saying your work is not for your own benefit. That's what thieves do. Right? When, when thieves thief or steal, it's all about them. It's all about acquiring more possessions for them. It's all about making much of them. And Paul says honest work, replace that with honest work so that you might have something to share with anyone in need. I think this is a really great reminder for us also that our work is not our God. Our work is not for the purpose of us to accumulate bigger things, nicer things, to have more, uh, to, be, uh, uh, to be more comfortable. To, uh, that the point of work, according to Paul, and according to God's word, is that so we might have something to share with anyone in need. So in other words, we labor according to love. We labor so that we might be able to offer to other people who are in need of it. I mean, the church has always been, you look from Acts all the way to Revelation, the, the, the church is marked by generosity, radical generosity. And I'm not going to preach a sermon about tithing. That's not where I'm going here with this, and that's not where the text is going. Because you can be generous in lots of ways, and your work can become your idol in lots of ways. You can work and work and work and work to build your own kingdom. And Paul says work to build God's kingdom. Work to advance that kingdom. And that means sharing with anybody that you have in need. That's why, that's why we're called to to honest work here. We're not called to honest work so that we could build treasures here on earth and to stockpile them and build bigger barns and bigger houses. And I'm not saying it's bad to have nice things. I'm just saying it's bad for your intention and your motive to work and work and work and work so that you could build your own kingdom and that so you could have more stuff. When you're a part of a family, you're part of a redeemed community that needs and that, that requires your resources. So we labor according to love as a way of living out our salvation with one another. And this could be sharing our time, sharing our resources, sharing whatever it is. Our goal as we work day in and day out is to labor according to love, to make sure that everybody in our church and everybody in our lives, our neighbor included, even those outside the church, are well taken care of because the only way we're going to make the gospel visible if, is if we actually live it and we, and we give freely and without restraints and without boundaries. James talks about this uh, in his letter to the church. He says, uh, what good is it, my brothers, if you come across someone and, say, and bless them and say, go in peace, and you know that they're in need, and yet you walk away and you have the world's goods and you refuse to actually share it. Um, uh, when I was at the first church that I was ever discipled in, 
Um, there was a couple years between 2014 and 2016, I think it was, where I um, didn't have a vehicle. I didn't have a car. And uh, I remembered all my needs were met at this church, uh, but th this one particular instance, um, I still had no idea how I was going to get a car because I was a broke community college student, um, you know, who was a part-time youth pastor at this church. So that doesn't shout, you know, brand new car or even beat up car, to be honest with you. It doesn't shout anything, really. I was just, you know, getting by. And uh, this older couple, uh, I received a uh, call from my pastor and said, hey, this older couple in the church wants to give you a car. Uh, wants to give you their uh, Cadillac, and I thought it was their newer Cadillac, so I was like really excited. And then I showed up, and it was this 2000 boat, and I was like, oh, okay, well. Um, but uh, the point is, 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 is they, there was no stipulations to their giving. There was no concern or anxiety about their losses in giving over something to a member, a, a member of themselves, a brother in Jesus, there, there was no concern, there was no anxiety that God was not going to be able to meet all their needs by handing me over one of their vehicles. It meant they were down a vehicle. And yet they said, hey, we want to give this to you because we know that you're not making a lot of money. We know you're in college. We know that you're pursuing the will of God. We know that you're doing this. So we just want to give this to you. And so I just got handed over a car. And so I'm not saying you have to hand over a car necessarily, but I'm saying you should know the needs and you should work to meet the needs of those who you are in fellowship with constantly, whether it's needs of time, whether it's needs of funding, whether it's needs, uh, emotional needs, whatever it is, your life should be oriented around the people of God for the glory of God. And so we labor according to love. Labor according to love, not according to, um, to build up ourselves. And the fourth way, that we live out our salvation with one another is we speak according to the Spirit, verses 29 through 30. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, Paul writes, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We should have more good things, more encouraging things, more consoling things to say to one another than we do condemning, controlling, critiquing. And it doesn't mean, uh, look, when Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, he's not saying that you can't ever uh, offer constructive criticism or rebuke or correction. All right? Corrupt talk is not synonymous with correctingness, right? Correcting a brother or sister. Corrupt talk is saying something that, again, is untrue as we look back at verse 25, or it makes little, minimizes the person next to you, a brother or sister whom for Christ died. So there should be more upbuilding, consolation, goodness. We should be the last people to slander against one another, to say negative things about one another. To, to tear down one another. Paul is saying, and it's also, it's not, and look in verse 30, he says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. That's not a separate thought. That's connected to verse 29. So your words, what you say about one another, whether it's behind closed doors, whether it's outside of the, in the parking lot, outside of the sanctuary, in your own homes, the Spirit of God is always around 
what you say. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, we could say something about one another, and it could offend and displease the Spirit who dwells within you. And he says, look, he says, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. In other words, the Holy Spirit is stuck with you. And what you say is either going to grieve him or it's going to please him. And Paul's uh, exhortation is say things that please the Spirit of God. And what you say to another brother or sister who also is indwelled by the Spirit of God is either going to grieve or please him. Say things to one another that don't merely please you and your flesh and your ego and your opinions and your rightness. Say things to one another that's going to please and make a... The, the spirit stay in your own home a good time. Notice Paul says, for building up as fits the occasion. Say words that are fitting for the moment. And so if that means your brother or sister is in plain air, say something. Build them up. If your brother or sister is walking through sorrow, console them. If your brother or sister is rejoicing, encourage. And it also goes to show, look, what we say is more than just a matter of the tongue. It's a matter of spiritual significance. There are real spiritual realities behind what we're saying towards one another. And we're going to see in Ephesians chapter 6 that the reason why some of this stuff is so difficult is because we have an enemy and we have agents who are after the church of God who don't want the church of God to continue to be built and built and built and grow to the measure and the fullness of the stature of Christ. And so what we say has profound spiritual implications. And you better believe that the words that are dwelling around in your mind that you're going you're gonna to shoot off and, and get somebody back with, or you're going to prove a point, or you're just going to go ahead and say and stick them with it, you better believe that that also can be a playground for the enemy. Let your words be for consolation let it be for exhortation. Let it be for building up. Let it be for the giving of grace to those who hear. Because we have been saved by grace. We're being sanctified by grace. So speak by grace and for grace for a brother and sister. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. This is, far, this is going far beyond just saying your favorite cuss word when you stick, stub your toe or saying wrong things. This is about what you say about one another to one another. This is profoundly spiritual and profoundly um, bears consequences for the church of God. So, so speak according to the Spirit. Don't speak according to your flesh. And finally, the fifth way that we live out our salvation with one, with one another is we forgive freely. We forgive freely. If you look at verse Verses uh, 31 through 32, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Forgive freely, because you have been freely forgiven. We do not have the luxury of those who have been forgiven without measure to forgive in measure. We don't get to choose how much forgiveness we're going to offer to somebody, and we don't get to choose who we get to forgive when we're going to forgive them. 
if a brother or sister offends or says something to you or does something to you and then asks for your forgiveness or confesses that sin and repents of that sin and you withhold any type of forgiveness towards that brother and sister, then according to Jesus, forgiveness is withheld from you from the Father. The only way someone is, uh, the only reason we're capable of forgiveness is because we've been forgiven for so much offense. That's why I think a a, a more robust biblical understanding of the gospel is going to produce gospel shaped lives. You know, the gospel of, uh, you know, these kind of watered down gospels that just talk about Jesus chasing your dreams, they produce a bunch of selfish dream chasers. But a gospel that says you've been forgiven for all your trespasses and your sins and your offenses against the holy God produces people who are freely forgiving those who minorly sin against them because they know that they have majorly sinned against the God of the universe. And you might say, well, I have forgiven people in my life. I have forgiven him, who, him or her who slighted me or who said something uh, or who hurt me or who uh, did this in my life. Um, can I just remind you that forgiveness is not just what you say, it's also how you act towards that person. If you're giving a cold shoulder to the person that you have forgiven, I might just ask, have you really forgiven them? Because forgiveness, biblical forgiveness, Christ-centered forgiveness, also entails reconciliation. Jesus didn't just forgive us for all our sins, he reconciled us to God and to one another. He made it so we could actually be in close proximity. God wasn't just up on his throne and said, I forgive you, but keep a distance. He said, I, Jesus came and he paid that price. He substituted himself on the cross, not only so that you can be forgiven, and that, but also so that you can have a close, reconciled relationship with God. And you can have that relationship and walk in that relationship and be in his presence and, and dwell with him not only now, but for eternity. And he, that's, that's, what forg- that's what Christ... Because Paul says, you don't forgive according to the flesh, and you don't forgive according to your own notions of, for- of forgiveness. You forgive as God in Christ forgave you. The model for forgiveness is the holy triune God who forgave everything uh, of your past, present, and future, and asked you, not only forgave you, but asked you to come in and be a part of that family. God did not have, have to, in his self-sufficient triune self, he did not have to invite sinners into a close proximity and relationship with himself and then offer to be a part of the way that he's also going to reconcile other people to himself. He didn't have to do that. God has been completely self-sufficient and self-sustaining and in fellowship with Father, Son, Holy Spirit from eternity, and yet... As created beings, as fallen, sin, uh, trespassing, creating beings, God said, you know what? I still want that. I want you near me. I want you with me. One of Jesus' last prayers on earth is recorded in John 17, and one of the prayers he prays for his people is that, Father, that they might be where I am at in glory. And so our forgiveness ought to be modeled and based on the forgiveness of Jesus. And yet we spend so much of our lives giving out forgiveness in measure. And it might not be by the way we talk, but it could be by the way that we give this brother or sister a cold shoulder. Or how we refuse to offer our resources. Look, this all builds on itself, right? If you are not in constant uh, forgiving place 
for your brother and sister, right? You're not going to tell the truth. You're not going to heed your own heart. You're not going to labor according to love. And you're not going to speak according to the Spirit. And you're certainly not going to walk in love as Paul is going to outline when we begin chapter 5. You see, living out our salvation with one another is plain, it's practical, and it's laid out here for us in the Word of God. We don't have to guess on it. We don't have to invent it. We don't have to make excuses for it. But we are called to live by the Spirit according to the pattern of how God is building it. This is how God is going to build His church. That isn't just some philosophical, theoretical thing that Jesus came up with and said, I'm going to build my church and, you know, I'm just going to, um, and you guys can just kind of, you know, be, you know, show up together on a Sunday and uh, I'll take care of the rest. No, no, no. God said, I'm going to build my church and here's how it's going to be built. It's going to be built on the truth and it's going to be built on believers who are sensitive to their own hearts and heeding their own hearts. And it's going to be built on people who labor according to love, speak according to the Spirit and forgive freely. That is is a church where the Spirit is moving. I had somebody ask me a question this weekend. Uh, they were telling me, they were asking me some theological questions, and uh, she, she asked me, um, she goes, so I have, uh, I have some friends and I have some people, and I grew up in a uh, denomination that uh, will, will often walk into certain churches and then they'll make an assumption that the Spirit is not moving in that church. And so her, her question to me was, how do you know if a Spirit, how, how do you know if the Holy Spirit is moving in a church? And according to her own, um, you know, circles that she hung out with, uh, the way a spirit is moving in the church is if people's arms are moving up and down. And if people are externally expressive, or or, or, or tongues are being spoken, and our prophecy has happened, or, you know, all these external things. And if that's not going on, I've I've heard people walk into certain churches peers of my own at Liberty, and they have said, yeah, I I went and visited this church. I'm looking for a church, and I just didn't sense the Spirit working and moving in that church. And I'm like, well, that's interesting. How did you come to that conclusion after one Sunday? And they'll say, well, you know, people were just kind of dry and singing, like, you know, standing still, and they weren't really, you know, they weren't really excited for God. And I just think to myself, that is the most arrogant, self-centered, ridiculous nonsense that I have ever heard. You don't know, you cannot make an assumption that the Spirit of God is not moving in a church because those things are happening. You know how you can tell if the Spirit is moving in a church or not? Is whether these five exhortations are being lived out. I do not care if a group of people look excited on a Sunday morning. It's morning. Not everybody's a morning person. And so I get it if you don't want to jump and do jumping jacks in a church service. I get it if you don't don't want to repeat the same words over and over again and just kind of move around. But what I do care about and what God cares about is if his church is living according to the scriptures. And so, saints... You who have been redeemed by Jesus and called to live a life modeled after Jesus. Tell the truth, no matter how difficult it is. Heed your own heart. Labor according to love. Speak according to the Spirit and forgive freely. And in this way, Jesus will build and bless and be among his people. And then you will see the Spirit working abundantly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us to our own devices. We thank you 
Lord, that in this way, Jesus has loved us. He has given us the truth of who you are, God. He has come to say, I am the way, the life, and the truth. He has pointed out the condition of our own hearts and in that way has made us respond in the glory and beauty and the grace of the gospel and of his own person and work. He has labored according to love and he has done it for the joy set before him. His love knew no bounds. Lord, you have also spoken according to the Spirit, written down in your holy word, and you have freely forgiven us. So, Lord, I pray that we would be your church in that way, modeled after the good and gracious, true God who redeems sin-sick hearts to be in fellowship with himself. God, may we be and live and meditate on these truths so that our words and deeds and the meditation of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable to you. And in this way, Lord, and in this way, may we move forward in the best of times, in the days of the tomb being empty, and may we be faithful to make disciples and to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. We love you and we thank you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. To learn more about Faith Community Church, you can find us online at fccsobo.org or on our Facebook page by searching Faith Community Church. As always, God loves you, we love you, and we hope you have a wonderful week.